Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Fighting and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. For the fifth year in a row, uh, this year we had our public domain game jam celebrating newly public domain works in the U.S. and encouraging people to actually make use of those newly public domain works. Uh, in this case, in the creation of games, both digital online browser-based games and analog games that you would play around a table or, or whatever. This year, we are talking about works from 1927, which entered the public domain. Uh, and in some ways, I would say this was maybe a bit of a down year in terms of super high-profile works. There were a few, but but maybe not as high-profile as some of the other works that people have been talking about. Last year, there was Winnie the Pooh, and so lots of people were talking about that entering the public domain. Next year, we finally get the really big one which is uh, the original form of Mickey Mouse will enter the public domain. And I am sure that there will be lots and lots of discussion about that, what that means. There's already been articles about how Disney is going to use trademark to limit the use of Mickey Mouse. And there'll be all sorts of interesting discussions on the difference between trademark and copyright and what is actually in the public domain. But that sh certainly should be... Uh, an attention-getting public domain uh, setup next year, and I plan. We all plan to be having another game jam, and it'll be really interesting to see what, if anything, people will do with with Mickey Mouse. Uh, still, this year there were tons of really great and interesting works that entered the public domain, and there was still tremendous interest uh, in our game jam. So this year we had 20 entries, um, each exploring different ways to build on these newly public domain works. Uh, as we've done each and every year after we hold the game jam and after we've done the judging, uh, we get on the microphones and record a podcast about this year's entries uh, focusing on the winners, but also maybe a few honorable mentions uh, as well. So as always, I'm joined by the rest of the team that puts together the Game Jam every year, and that is Lee Beaton and Randy Lubin. So uh, welcome back to the podcast, guys. Thanks, Mike. Good to be back. Yeah. Happy to be doing this for another year. Cool. So before we start talking about specific games, I did want to discuss, now that we've been doing this for five years, uh, if we've noticed any sort of patterns or interesting things that stand out from these public domain game jams. So either one of you, I don't know if there's anything that you've that, that has stood out in, in five years of game jams. I'll, I'll note that there's always this like inner anxiety when we first launched like oh is anyone going to join this year are we actually going to get good games and then like every year i'm blown away because there's a bunch of submissions and they're all like very thoughtful and i'm like okay my my fears were for nothing which is great <laughs> <laughs> people are not tiring of the public domain <laughs> no and they, I, I one of the patterns i mean i love love is just a lot of the obscure references that people dig up, even, yeah. even outside the like clear like ringers for the deep cut category, which is definitely my favorite category. I'm so glad that we we decided to make that a, like one of the prize categories. Yeah, but I, absolutely. I think just, like, there's such richness and getting to see 
that brought in is great. And getting to see um, not not like not so much the overt remixes, but like the subtle like, oh, I'm just going to pull a little bit of art in from other art that's in the public domain from that year in a way that is just like right. perfectly complementing uh, whatever else the game is doing is great. Yeah, the other, you know, also, I mean, we've certainly noticed some patterns with specific designers, some of which we'll talk about more when we get to the winners, like a few people have really begun carving out styles and sort of niches for themselves, even just within this game jam, which I think is very cool. I guess another pattern we've noticed is that generally speaking, and at this point, we should be expecting this, we don't get as many games based on the super high profile things entering the public domain each year as we often expect to like we usually get a few there were a few winnie the pooh ones that made a splash you know but um it it is uh, a lot of the time we're like oh maybe it'll all just be uh, all just be around this one big thing entering the public domain and that never seems to happen which does make me wonder what'll happen next year for mickey mouse there may be way fewer (laughs) mickey games than expected you know What I suspect, I think what we saw last year is there's probably going to be a Mickey Mouse specific jam that's running at the same time. And we'll see Mm. people who submit to that who also submit to us. So like last year, I think we saw a handful of Winnie the Pooh games that were made for the Winnie the Pooh jam, which is fine. Like that totally works. Yeah. 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 There's no there's no proprietariness in, in a public domain game jam. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed, which is is cool, is is just seeing like the the real variety in in the games and and like you randy i i appreciate the the sort of deep cut choices but beyond that not just the deep cut choices but how the different game designers like build games that fit those works right like you know i think one of the things that i worried about when we start doing this was that it would be easy to just sort of like you know take a work and insert it into some sort of game, you know, mechanic and just sort of say like, this is a public domain work that like, just, but like the, especially with the deep cuts, it's true of, of lots of the different games, but especially with the deep cuts, like they actually make a game that fits the work, like the, the mechanics and the game design and the whole elements all fit together in such creative ways um, that it, you know, it's, it's kind of inspiring to me. And so I, I really like the sort of, creativity not just of like i'm going to use this particular piece of content and i'm going to make this game but how those things really fit together really nicely in ways that like i would never have have thought possible you know some of these are are really unique and i think that's that's definitely true of some of the winners of this year's game as well definitely there's also a a category in between like the deep cut and the, the obvious stuff which is something that because some of the deep cuts feel like oh you like you went through the archives to see what inspired you cool but sometimes we see someone saying, like, I actually have fond memories of this from my childhood. So it's like it's not a gift right. from, for them. It's just something they loved. And now they get to share it with right. the world. And that is like so, so cool. So we have one of those that we'll talk about, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I think we see that sort of every year. I think last year there were some like slightly deeper cuts on the in the mystery genre that aren't like the big mystery right. writers you would have heard of, but that people still had fond memories and attachments to. It's like, great. That's awesome. Yeah. And 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 one other thing I'll mention this now though it may come up again later as well was like you know Lee you talked about how you know we don't necessarily see like a huge rush of like people all focusing on like the big the big name things um, and again like this year there there was you know there were some like Metropolis was probably one of the bigger name things that went into the public domain this year I thought was interesting was like what surprised me was we actually had um, a bunch of entries this year 
that all made use of the the automat, the the Edward Hopper painting, the automat, which like everyone recognizes. If if you haven't seen it and you look it up, you'll recognize that painting. And I was surprised at how many games use that, but like often in sort of like subtle ways, like it was just there. And and so you know, it struck me as interesting as to like which things people actually grab onto um, and make use of. So. It's uh, good stuff. All right. Well, let us get into the actual winners this year. Uh, and so the way we're going to do this is um, we'll, we'll go through and Lee, you'll give a really quick summary on what the game is like. And again, like if you're listening to this, I really, really encourage you to go check out all of them and and test them out and play them when you can, um, because some of these are just really, really great and, and unique. So Leo, will give a really quick summary and then we'll, we'll discuss our thoughts on it. Um, and I think we're going to start with the best analog game, uh, which I have lots of commentary on, which is Tower Tree Stories by David Harris. So Lee, you want to give a quick description? Yeah, this is uh, one of our returning winners. In fact, our most returning winner now, David Harris, yes. who created Tower Tree Stories. Uh, th- this would be his fourth win uh, for a game in these game jams because he has consistently really impressed us with the stuff that he makes. Um, his past games were all based on art, something he like the visual art, something he clearly knows a lot about. They would explore the works of a painter and do some in very creative ways but this year he's done something totally different we've got tower tree stories which is a role-playing game based on a 1927 high school yearbook which uh, is a very cool premise that we'll talk about more as we dig into it but uh basically it puts players in the shoes of these students whose faces you can see all throughout this yearbook and uses that as the foundation to explore and improvise you know what the lives of these people might be behind the glimpse of them that you get from looking at the yearbook and so it's played using a, a real copy of a real 1927 yearbook that you're encouraged to go through and look at all the photos and read all the things and then it has a bunch of fairly simple but interesting rules to uh, have the players start role-playing and building out a relationship map of how all of these students relate to each other and what's going on in their lives and so on. And that's Tower Tree Stories, which is our best analog game. Yeah, and the thing that struck me about it was it was just such a, I mean, again, just the idea of using a high school yearbook and then like building this game that is basically like, you know, like if you just flip through a random high school yearbook that you didn't, you know, weren't a part of, like you, you start building stories in your mind about who these people are and you see pictures and clubs and, and different, different things that people are involved in. And and so it, you, it naturally sort of makes you start to, to think up stories and, and, you know, David put together this game that sort of, you know, takes that to the next level and, and sort of makes you create the, the relationship map, how the different students know each other, what they're doing and, and, and just sort of brings it to life in this really, really kind of fascinating. Yeah, way. I mean, conversely to what you're saying, also if you look at a high school, old high school yearbook that you were a part of, right? You, you know, you see, right. you see, you know, just maybe it's just one little three inch photo of someone's face, and you're like, oh, there were all these stories, all these things, all this whole life there that I know about, and this is the remnant of it, right? Like you know how much right. is buried <laughs> beneath the surface, and so yeah, it's it's very interesting in that way. I, uh, there's so much to like here. And I also think it really shows off David's range um, because it is such a different type of game than the more art-centric games that he made in the past. So uh, I'm just, what, what a great designer. Um, and I also love how he, he goes beyond just the like 
pick some students and draw the connections, but he has all these rules that more deeply engage with some of the nuances and quirks of this 1927 yearbook. So it's, it's yeah. not just like pick any yearbook, but right. Um, yeah, there's this, uh, I'll just get rattling off a couple examples. He has like the Allegro club rule, which is if you have no idea what a specific club <laughs> or activity is, just, you know, make, make it up, invent it, enroll with it. Um, or, uh, let's see some of the other examples here. I mean, there's a, there's a, very dramatic poem that one of the students had written. And so uh, a player can perform that poem and they get extra <laughs> points if they do so. Uh, there are ways to engage with the advertisements that are in there. So it's, it's just a very clever look at all of the affordances of, of a 1927 yeah. yearbook. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it was interesting to me too, and thinking like, you know, just even making me look at like a 1927 yearbook and realizing like how different it is than, than a more modern yearbook or, you know, I mean, I'm more familiar with like from, from, from my own high school yearbook, which is no longer modern, <laughs> but, but like just seeing how these things evolve and grow as well, I thought was actually kind of an interesting thing, but you know, just, just the fact that to some extent the game itself sort of illuminates like, you know, high, high school, angst to some extent and and how it's like always been there and just like the natural like um you know path of sort of like going through high school and and you know relationships that people have and 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 growing up and maturing and all of these things all built into a game built on top of this this 1927 yearbook it's just it's absolutely fascinating i think i think it's a, a really really fantastic idea um that's just super engaging yeah, and I did want to sort of randomly point out, um, not to distract from the amazing game that David made here, but also we had one of our other past year winners, uh, Josh from Dirtbug Games, was also working on a yearbook-based uh, digital game in this case that was about uncovering a strange mystery uh, inside of the pages of a yearbook. It wasn't quite finished in time to submit to the jam, but I just wanted to give a quick shout out to it because some of the screenshots that he posted during working on it were really cool, and I, I hope he'll continue making that game game because i i like that two people had a similar source of inspiration there and realized a yearbook could be a cool foundation for a game so yeah cool um any other comments on on tower tree stories? i just want to note that in in 1927 this high school did not have a debate league it had a state high school discussion league <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great <laughs> All right, uh, so let us move on to the best digital entry, and this was Escape from 1927 by Jacob's, Jacob Sylvia. Yeah, um, so this was, you know, I, again, maybe one of the higher profile works to enter the public domain this year was the first three Hardy Boy novels. Um, not high profile in the sense that those three novels are extraordinarily famous, but it is a very famous property and very well known. Um, certainly one that seems to suit itself to games. So we did have a couple people incorporated in their works, though, again, less than I maybe expected. But uh, this one was uh, by far the coolest. It takes the first Hardy Boys novel and the story therein and turns it into sort of your classic point and click adventure game or actually more of even a hidden object game um, which is you know a long and well-established genre and has you basically just moved through the beats of that original Hardy Boys mystery solving little puzzles and uh, does this all in a really funny really comedic way it's written in this sort of super clipped you know 
flippant fashion that all the dialogue is really quick and short and it's clearly just kind of like summarizing the beats of this story um, but it just develops this wonderful comedic tone and then of course the thing that I think spoke to us a lot and made it so perfect for the game jam is it has a bunch of great jokes about copyright that it incorporates into it and, and not just into like the writing and the it's inserted jokes in there it even kind of makes it part of the game there's like puzzles to there's even a puzzle to do with the year that the work enters the public domain, <laughs> yes. which, you know, you're sort of intended to get wrong because it was originally supposed to enter the public domain much sooner. And it's, you know, so it's a very clever, obviously speaks to us and the purpose of this game right away. And, you know, just overall a, a fun little simple digital experience. Yeah. I mean, it, it struck me as, uh, you know, as that sort of meta commentary, was very clever, cleverly done, right? I mean, it. You know, there are ways to do that that aren't aren't that clever or don't fit, and and yet, you know, Jacob made made sure that it really fit uh, in, into the game. <coughs> Excuse me, and just it, it was uh, it was fun. I, I just really enjoyed playing through it. I enjoyed being reminded of just the like artifice of Hardy Boy stories. Like as someone who read them as a kid, <laughs> right. like it just like. It also it was like it rung true to like the vague memories I had, but also it's like this is a very right. silly frame story. Like one of the hard yes, like, so I captured that spirit well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, also as someone who who had read, I had read many Hardy Boys books as as a kid, uh, and and more recently had reread, including the the first one, um, with 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 my kids. Uh, who were not impressed. <laughs> so we, we we did not get beyond, maybe we got through the second book with, with my kids and then they were like, these are not good. <laughs> so so uh, it was kind, kind of interesting to, to yeah, to, to sort of relive that. But in, in this sort of, you know, sort of, you know, slightly sarcastic fashion, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Also, I appreciated that it was like a fully constructed and functional digital game. I mean, it's simple and the graphics yeah. are nothing amazing. And, you know, the puzzles are quite straightforward, but it was, it's all there. It's all built. It all works. It's, you know, I, I not exactly polished, but complete. It's a, it's a fully functional playable game. Yeah. It's not glitchy and, and so on, which is a difficult thing to do in a, in a game jam like this. Definitely. And I feel like so, oftentimes we'll get a lot of digital submissions that are like, oh, this is just like a demo level or just a first first couple chapters. Um, Which is fine, and, by the way, to anyone right, thinking about totally doing fine that. And yeah. I need to explore that. But like, it's just that much better when we go, oh, people like scoped it to what they could get done and they have a complete thing. And it's, it's great. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely fun to play. All right. So next up, we have the best adaptation, and that is To and Again by Perinellis. Yeah. So this is our other returning winner this year. Uh, the designer previously won with The Wall Across the River in the same category, best adaptation. Uh, this year, it is To and Again, which is the game that Randy referred to earlier as being a case of someone taking something that wasn't exactly a deep cut for them. Uh, it was a treasured childhood favorite, but is largely a deep cut for everyone else. It, uh, the novel by the same name, To and Again, uh, though apparently it was later released under a different name, which I don't have up in front of me right now. But uh, uh, Freddie Goes to Florida. Freddie Goes to Florida. And it because it became a series about these animals, this group of animals going on adventures. But the very very first one was originally written as a standalone and uh it's you know 
it sounds to me, I haven't read it, but it sounds to me like sort of your classic children's adventure fair, you know, a bunch of animals go on a big, long journey and they encounter different things along the way and, and have a little adventure. And it's clearly something that stuck with the designer sort of their whole life. They read it a lot as a child and this game introduces it to a whole new audience by turning it into a sort of board game, storytelling, role-playing game. Uses some dice and some simple boards to have the players all occupy the characters of these animals. They get little character sheets with stats and abilities they have, and they move through the game using light help from the dice and the rules and the game board to build out their own adventure story in a group. And uh, it seems very cool. It seems like it really captured the spirit you know, of the original, or at least the way that the, the memory of the spirit of the original in the mind of the designer, you know, it's them sharing something right. from their childhood with everyone else and trying to give them a chance to experience it, which is a very cool thing. Yeah. And there was also a little bit of commentary about copyright in terms of uh, some of the imagery that I believe is not, <laughs> not yet in the public domain. And so there was some commentary around that um but yeah i mean what was really cool to me about this was just sort of how personal it was and and sort of taking a personal memory and turning it into a game in a way that's sort of designed to to share that with the world um i thought was really really clever and i'm not sure we've really seen much of that before i thought you know it was a um you know almost you know almost this way to sort of enter into into their world and and their sort of childhood memories um, in a, in a game-like fashion. I thought that was just really, really cool. Uh, one thing I enjoyed reading this is, is the sense I got that the, uh, creator really enjoyed, um, unpacking and exploring the, all the tropes and dynamics of these stories, um, and capturing mm -hmm. them that in this case, mostly in the form of like procedural generation tables. Uh, I know in, in some of our, our more serious design work, we often will say that like a lot of the value are the insights that you gain by designing the game even before the game gets played. Right. And um, I, I think like in this sense, yeah, like my guess is that the the, the creator that um, Perrin came out of this with a much deeper uh, sense and intuition for how, what makes these stories tick uh, than going in perhaps. Um, and so I think that's just like another cool effect that comes from designing games and why I love encouraging people to design games is that you get to a better articulation of why you love the genres and tropes and, and things that you love. Yep. Yeah, and the, and the best adaptation category is, you know, it's all about, obviously, like, as we've said, there's lots of different ways to use material in a game like this, and, and many of the best games we've seen have almost nothing to do with the original purpose of the material. They're using it to create something completely different, which is one of the very cool things you can do with the public domain, and, and one of the reasons it's valuable. But another thing that's valuable is adapting a work to carry on its meaning and its intent and its value in a new format or in a new medium in a new what have you and bring it to a new audience and then so that's what this game very clearly intended to do and succeeded at doing which is why you know even though it was a contender maybe for best analog game as well it's very good on a lot of fronts but best adaptation really is you know suited it so perfectly because it, it is adapting this work into a new medium yep all right, so let's move on to best remix. And Randy, you were just talking about uh, encouraging people to design games, and the winner of best remix this was 
the game is called Lucia by Azzy Free, and it is their very first game. They seemed uh, a little nervous, perhaps, but very excited about about creating a game. And uh, and so for best remix, Lucia. Uh, Lee, you want to describe it? Yeah, Lucia is your classic visual novel style. Uh, most people are probably familiar with that. It's you know a story told through dialogue uh, with uh, character art and settings. You know, it's a, it, it, but it's like you know an in, an interactive storytelling game. Um, and it is based on not the original Dracula, which has been in the public domain for a very long time and was uh, never registered for copyright in the U.S., but based on a play about Dracula that came out in 1927. Um, it sort of uses that as the main framework for part of its story, but then it draws from all of these other cool sources as well in a few different ways. It is one of the games that made use of the Edward Hopper painting Automat, as you mentioned, Mike, and that forms sort of the backdrop mm-hmm. of one of its major scenes, but also informed and inspired the original art the designer created for the main character, um, because this does combine a bunch of public domain art and original art. And then there's all these other little elements. You've got uh, really pure 20s background music lilting away while you're in the Automat, uh, um, you've got uh, posters on the city street for Metropolis, the big movie, as well as a few other uh, movies and shows from 1927. And so it, it was a very cool, very well put together visual novel on its own rights. And then it also brought in this you know, variety of elements in both small and bigger ways to make it a real genuine remix of a whole bunch of different works. And thus it became our best remix for the year. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I noticed about it too, is like sometimes with the sort of, uh, interactive novels or interactive stories, like, um, some of them, sometimes it feels a little difficult to get through. <laughs> like you hit a point where you're just like, okay, where's this going? Whereas this one, like I actually really enjoyed playing through it and actually ended up playing through it multiple times. Cause I kind of wanted to see what would happen if you went in, in, in different ways. Uh, and, and it just, you know, it, it felt very just like an enjoyable game to, to play through, or, you know, or story to play through and just sort of find out what was happening. And, and as you go, you sort of reveal more and more things. And it's, I thought it was just very well done, especially for, for a first game um, and, and just, you know, visually looked nice. It, it worked well. Um, so I, I thought it, you know, was, was a pretty, pretty complete package. All right, uh, so let us go on to best deep cut. Again, always a very fun category uh, because finding something you know didn't maybe didn't even realize was was <laughs> was an option for public domain material. Uh, and in this case, we have the Pigeon Wager uh, by Jason Morningstar. Yeah. So our sorry, I made it sound like it was our last one before, but this is our third and final returning winner from a previous jam. Jason Morningstar won the same category last year with the obstruction method, which was based on a scientific study um, and uncovered and drew in a shocking amount of, you know, interesting story and setting and stuff that were all related to this scientific study. And uh, we have a similar but different thing this year. The Pigeon Wager is based on a 1927 article in the Wilson Ornithological Club's Quarterly Magazine of Ornithology <laughs> entitled On the Military Use of the Homing Pigeon. And based drawing from that and actually quite a few other 1927 sources in small ways as well, this is a role-playing game about a pigeon race and it incorporates uh, things to do with uh, like sort of 
gang conflict in 1920s New, New Jersey where it's set. Um, but I think actually, Randy, I'll hand it off to you to talk more about this one because I know you love this one and you love Jason Morningstar's work. So uh, if you want to talk more about it, go for it. Yeah, I mean, this is this is such a like archetypical Jason Morningstar work on so many levels. Like it, it deals with deep historic material in interesting ways, um, inter- interleaved across multiple sort of thematic points. Uh, the, the the frame story, as Lee started uh, describing, is there's um, there's two gang members um, from from opposite gangs who are vying over territory, and rather than have it come to violence, hopefully they've decided to like wager on on a bet. Um, in, in this case, I, I would huge you know pigeon racing over hundreds of miles bet to see who will get this territory except neither of the gang members have gotten their boss's approval so they they kind of can't lose which um you know <laughs> they each can't lose they can't back down so there, there's a lot of tension and it's unclear like once the actual pigeon comes in will things start to violence anyway um but in a very very jason morningstar way a lot of the game is meant to be played in subtext where you're you're just sitting around waiting for the results of the race to come in as the the pigeons return from their multiple hundred mile race um and uh and the pigeon keeper uh or the i forget what the the, the title is of the, the character who like sort of runs the, the pigeon race uh announces who the winner is so you're just kind of sitting there with a lot of tension and a lot of a lot of the game is in the subtext of you know violence might be breaking out soon we're gonna learn information that's gonna change and recontextualize everything but Maybe we're going to engage in small talk while we do, and it's all very, very <laughs> tense. And it's just, it's just so brilliantly Jason Morningstar. Jason was a judge for us the first couple of years, and then um, you know, we used to have slates of I don't know, maybe a dozen, a dozen judges to help us out, and then just to to streamline things the last couple of years we haven't. And I'm so glad we we changed that because I love seeing Jason's submissions, <laughs> um, and uh, so this is really great. And you know, so, so he he draws on the um, he, he he pulls in a bunch of other uh, public domain work, so. He has this great soundtrack, which is uh, you know the a radio from. Uh, and, and go ahead, Mike. I, I just want to jump in and point out, like the the in in lots of games, you may have a soundtrack that's just sort of you know in the background and it's sort of background. But like here, the soundtrack is actually a key component of how the game works, which I think is also really really clever. Like you have to be listening to the soundtrack to make the game work properly yeah so specifically the, you, you have yeah. you, what would normally be like a, a radio broadcast from the the 1920s but then it's interspersed with the sound of uh pigeon noises uh you know, ruffling feathers <laughs> and squawks and that's that plays every time that plays a new pigeon has returned home to the to the roost to the club and the, the player who's playing the um the the race adjudicator i don't remember what the right term is well then has to go and see oh which which pigeon came in and um, right. there's a, a whole array of these little curled up, um, what it, when in a real race, I guess, would be the name of the pigeon or the pigeon owner. But in this case are a mixture of like memories uh, from the war or uh, <laughs> other other little details um, that that cause the uh, the player who's who's opening them up to, to reflect, which is excellent. And again, we'll likely cover the play as I keep waiting. And then toward the very end of the game, one of the two uh uh, gangsters pigeons will arrive and you know hence winning the bet between the two of them um but it's just it's perfect you're, you're listening and then you're just listening to the music the music's going on and then suddenly you know squawk and it's like oh is this is this the, is this the pigeon that's going to end the game um it's great 
it just yeah it's it's so good and it's so jason morningstar yeah, yeah. i mean li- you know live action role play obviously always shares a certain amount of its craft with like improv in general and this feels like a game very much designed to put players in that spot because you've got this live action soundtrack with cues that will come when they come this is you know you are sort of occupying this character's shoes in real time you're really having to kind of improv this setting and this conversation and respond to things that are happening which is just in general a very cool you know fun approach for something like this yeah yeah no i i i i think it's fantastic and again just you know it's it's amazing to see what you know what can be done with with such you know seemingly random material and turn it into a a full and and really clever uh game so i think it's great all right and then the last of our winners is in the best visuals category and this is urbanity by uh, the the best name of any entrant in the in the game jam government name, yeah. So this is the there were a few entries based on Metropolis, uh, the you know which is one of as we've mentioned one of the higher profile works to enter the public domain, and this is the winner based on it that they made it in this year. Um, for those who aren't familiar with Metropolis, it's sort of like a very influential German expressionist kind of film that is, you know, really noted for its visuals and all of its sort of future city set design and some really advanced special effects for the time and stuff. So it's, you know, above all, it's remembered visually. And so fittingly, it it inspired this game that is a real like exploration of its themes, but also a big grand visual experiment. So it's a video game that made extensive use of AI generation to help develop it. Um, It used uh, imagery from the original movie to help uh, get an AI model to create new art for the game. Uh, But actually in the, in the rather long explanation of the process and what went into the game, which is really helpful that the designer included, they explained that uh, the AI also generated some of the text for the game and even some of the code for the game. They worked with ChatGPT to do some of the coding, which I think is very cool. But the visuals are what stand out about it the most. This isn't just like, oh, the AI spat out some cool looking images and they stuck them on screen. This is a fully rendered 3D game with these sort of very unsettling warped 3D city scapes that you know you move through um the game itself is extremely simple uh you know there's not a whole lot of gameplay there but it provides sort of two different paths as you're either a worker or a thinker in the bifurcated world of metropolis and you uh have to accomplish sort of various milestones in each of those roles and just Every screen just looks really cool. You have these sort of recreations of iconic shots from the original movie and you have some original shots and they're all, you know, very carefully, fully rendered. Uh, Just, you know, you feel absorbed in the visual world of this game from the moment you start playing. Yeah, I mean, it sort of immediately took me where you're just like, wow, someone actually built like this is, you know, it looks complex. And you sort of like fly through this this 3D world um, leading into the into the game itself. And so, um, yeah, I mean, again, like I sort of had the same reaction where like the game play itself was OK, but but the the visual aspect of it is pretty striking, um, you know, especially for sort of a, a, a game jam entry. Um, and it was just really fun to kind of explore the world that was that was built in the game. 
Yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it is impressive to put together. I mean, anytime someone decides to try to make a 3D game, a, a fully functional 3D video game for a jam like this, um, I mean, you know, obviously it can be done. Some people do it in 48-hour weekend game jams, but it is it is a hard <laughs> right. thing to do. It's a much uh, bigger undertaking, so I'm impressed by anyone who even attempts to do that and, uh, you know, it, to actually get it finished and working and full of lots of interesting stuff yeah. to look at and you know yeah very impressive yeah i thought it was great all right so those are the the winners but i think we wanted to just discuss a few others kind of honorable mentions um just you know there were a lot of really good games um there were some difficult decisions in terms of the judging as well. Um, so we'll just sort of quickly run through maybe a few of the other ones. You know, one that I really liked a lot uh, just conceptually was um, the chess player by, by Nora Katz, who, who has won in the past. Um, and, you know, the cool thing there is it's sort of a, a role-playing storytelling kind of game, but built on top of chess. Um, which I thought was just really, really clever. So like basically as you're playing a chess game, it sort of prompts you, uh, the players, to to engage in, in kind of a, a storytelling role-playing game uh, at the same time and just sort of, you know, adds an entirely different dimension to, to a chess game. Yeah. And there's nice guidance was... in there of not having to be great at chess to, to be able yeah. to play it. There's lots of... Lots of evocative prompts throughout based on the moves that you're making, the captures that you're making, et cetera. It's just, yeah, it's really, really nicely designed. Yeah, I think this is the one that was probably the most painful for us to leave out of the winner's list. Like, you know, we, we have to trim them down and there's always something we wish we could give a prize to that doesn't quite make it. But, uh, you know, this one absolutely deserves a shout out. Just, you know, it's, um, it is a chess game between a human and an automaton is the story. So it's exploring right. a bunch of cool ideas and themes related to that. And it's all very well put together, but it really is that core idea is one of those things where when you see it, you just immediately are like, oh, that is such a good idea. And I wish I thought of it. And I'm amazed. No one, you know, like <laughs> it's got all these little rules for what's happening. You're just playing a chess game. But the things that happen, it's, it translate into prompts for the ongoing story between the two players. Absolutely brilliant concept. Uh, so, yeah, a huge shout out to that one. Yeah, I like that one a lot. Um, another one I liked uh, was Cream Pied uh, by S. Westall. Um, and this is just sort of like a board card game kind of thing. Um, it just, I, I thought it was well-designed, uh, and, and sort of looked like a, a really sort of fun, fun game to play. Um, and so, you know, it, it's sort of a, you know, a, a card game that in which you're throwing pies at people. Yeah. creating <laughs> a classic food fight kind of yeah. yeah it's a pie fight which is you know a sort of staple of early 20th century slapstick and vaudeville and stuff like that right and it just turns that into a game yeah i thought that you know i thought that would be a, a really fun one to, to actually sit down and, and play um yeah well it seems done. like some great well thought out competitive mechanics you know and it's designed clearly to be fast-paced and humorous but it's uh it's a fully you know a full-fledged game there's a there's a lot there to to make the gameplay move along and so yeah no just a very cool piece of design um 
what else? Do I, we I sort of wanted to uh, give a shout out to Meowtropolis, which was another one of the Metropolis yep. ones. Um, you know, related to what I was saying before, anyone who tries to undertake a full fledged 3D game always impresses me. And that was another one of the main ones that did it. Um, it's sort of like a like a adventure squad management kind of game you are you're managing a a group of cats who are trying to foment a revolution in the cat equivalent of the city from fritz lang's metropolis and uh right and also a a fully developed 3d world yeah uh, yeah and 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 it's a bit janky and a bit buggy and you know there it it would need a lot of polish but it is very cool project and it has this great aesthetic it's this like ultra lo-fi kind of dim grimy aesthetic of which is you know right really great sort of game jam tactic because it doesn't require a lot of super high quality high detail assets it it cut you know makes things easier to make but it doesn't just look like it was a choice to make things easy it look you know they embraced that and turned it into an aesthetic which is a smart and sort of vital thing to do if you want to make a more ambitious game on a tight timeline like this so i think it you know deserves a shout out for that definitely yeah um just trying to think. I, I also uh, David Harris, who who won with Tower Tree Stories, also had a second entry, uh, which deserves some mention. Which is now I am six again, which was also in in classic David Harris way, very very clever. Um, <clears throat> in in that it's sort of uh, you know building on the the uh, uh, Christopher Robin Milne world uh and and sort of rewriting uh a with 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 notes from the from the future i guess yeah i think the frame story was that christopher robin had discovered this book of poems decades later as an adult and then wrote all sorts of marginalia so so it uses the the original text and then has extra text around it about how to engage in it often with um sort of poetic imaginings or like like little mini games tied to these different pieces um which is a really really cool way of remixing and repurposing older work. And I hope we see a lot more things that, that use and comment upon the original work without, you know, not, not necessarily um, completely remaking or adapting that work, but using that work as something to, to explore, coming up with a new path or method of engaging with that work. Right. Um, yeah, no, I thought that was, that was very clever. I'm trying to think what which other ones. I mean, there's the Dali Arcade, which was a infinite runner through a Dali painting, and it's almost exactly what you would expect it to be, you know, based on that description. Um, and and fun, yeah. You know, I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it was one of the first know. ones I ran. I played actually when I started randomly opening games to check uh-huh. out. And yeah, no, I was I was impressed with it. It's very very cool. It's not you know not, nothing too mind blowing there, but it all works. It's all fun. It all runs, and it's a neat little you know. It does you, you do get the dolly feeling from it pretty quickly when you're playing right. for sure. Um, and yeah, there's some there are, you know other very interesting ones in there too. We had the little card game storytelling game based on Magritte paintings. Um, Mm-hmm. There was, uh, yeah, there were, uh, there were, there was a cool, um, it was a bit difficult and a bit, you know, not quite there yet, but I thought meme tag 1927 was actually kind of interesting. There were some neat ideas in there, right. a sort of arcade game, uh, but with its framing story being about the sort of the transmission of information and ideas. Um, you know, I, I, I hope that designer keeps working on it cause there's something cool there for sure. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but I, you know, we will link obviously in the description to both our, our post outlining all the winners and those honorable mentions, but also to the submissions page on itch where you can play all of the games. So totally, I think everyone should go, uh, go check out what's there because we haven't mentioned everything. And I think, you know, all of the games have at least something interesting about them. There's something worth seeing, you know, that the designer did in each one of the entries. So. Yeah, it's really great. I mean, I think, you know, each year, you know, as, as Randy said at the beginning, it's, there's always like a little bit of like, is anyone actually going to do anything? And then if they do, is it going to be any good? Uh, but every year we're always amazed and just like the level of creativity and, and just cleverness that is, that is put into these games is, is really amazing. And is exactly what we hoped for when we started putting together the, this game jam every year. And just amazing to see, you know, what, what it is that people can do with the public domain and, and build. Yeah. Up. I mean, you know, it's something obviously at Tech Dirt we've written and talked about for a long, long time, but you know, it's worth reiterating like the core point here. There are, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, who don't care about or even defend the excessive length of copyright and the general <laughs> strictures of copyright, you know, uh, core to that is a suggestion or even an outright claim that, you know, nothing really original comes out of using, reusing old things. And that the only, th if copyright's preventing anything, the only thing it's preventing is boring derivatives that don't offer anything new or people lazily copying old works or whatever, and that none of that's of any value. We've obviously long known that that's not even a little bit true. Um, the opposite is true. Having the ability to build on previous works can lead to all new, amazing, unexpected realms of creativity. It can fuel great ideas. It can revive old works with new things that, that make them more interesting in a new era. There's just so many possibilities there. It's the reason that it's important to have an ever-growing public domain. It's the reason it was such a shame for so long that nothing new was entering the public domain in the US, which is you know why, why we launched this game jam when things finally started entering again. And yeah, every year I think the designers do a great job of demonstrating that fact that you know the ability to build on existing works is really powerful and it benefits everyone it benefits the culture it fuels creativity and it expands does not diminish or repeat you know what's available to us as, as creative works yeah i mean that's what i feel like we should just end the podcast <laughs> right now because <laughs> that's that's exactly it that's everything that that we've been trying to show over the years and and i think that the game jam really brings out very very clearly you know how how valuable and important uh, a vibrant and available public domain is so um, join us next year so. um and uh and, and yes. make game, even if you've never made a game before Stay tuned. Yes. Come join. It's like, as you've seen, like there are first time game designers who win the major awards and it's never been easier to get into game design with tons of tools and frameworks to help you out. So, so please mm -hmm. do and, whether you make a Mickey and, Mouse game, some kind of deep cut, right. something altogether different. I just took a quick look. I think uh, Call of Cthulhu is entering the public domain. Oh, interesting. Um, and I believe I saw somewhere Lady Shatterley's Lover too. Um, yep. Yeah. yeah it's going to be a big year. Uh, so, so please join us next year, next January 1st. Yeah. For gaming like yeah, it's yeah, 1928. Yes. And you can, you can start planning now. You can't release anything until those works are actually in the public domain, but you can certainly start planning now. Uh, though, I mean, again, the, we do set aside the month of January for the actual game jam. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be, it'll be an exciting year next year. So if you're inspired by any of this, go play the games, you know, think about, look at what works are coming into the public domain. Think about what fun stuff you can do 
uh, and, and join us next year. All right. Well, uh, thank you to everyone who entered the public domain game jam this year. That uh, was great. And thank you, uh, Randy and Lee, uh, again, for all the work we've done together on, on the game jam and for joining me on the podcast as well. And thank you finally to everyone who is listening and we hope that we've inspired you to uh, create a game next year or just create a game now. Why wait? <laughs> doesn't have to just be public domain games, but uh, <laughs> thank you for listening and we will be back next week. Someone will get. Ha! So grab a shovel and dig up the tap. Ha! So grab a shovel and dig up the tap. Ha! So grab a shovel and dig up the tap. Ha! So grab a shovel and dig up the tap.